0: Welcome, everybody. Time for another episode of Asher Sales Sense, brought to you by Asher Strategies. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Asher Sales Sense. I'm Susan Finch, and I'm here with our host, John Asher, and his guest, John Edwards. John Edwards is a marketing, sales, and consulting professional with over 30 years of experience working with some of the world's leading brands, including AOL, Netscape, Time Warner, Apple, Walmart, CNN, and so many others. And John thought he would be the perfect guest on this topic, which today is From AI to Chat GPT, 14 Questions Answered for Marketers. John and John, welcome. Welcome.
1: Great. It's great to be here. Me too. Great to be here with Susan, with you and John. (laughs) (laughs) The two Johns weren't too sure who was supposed to answer first. (laughs) (laughs)
2: As long as it was again. John, nobody got it wrong, right? So. <laughs>
0: well, John, you were telling me you sent me this list, a great outline for this episode, and some wonderful questions you wanted to pose to John Edwards, and I thought let's just get right into it.
1: Yeah, I know. thanks so much, Susan. I, you know, I just um, did a little research myself. Of course, I've been using ChatGPT.
0: Yeah, so let's go with the first one, John. So you've been doing so much research with ChatGPT lately. You're as fascinated as I am, and we had Judy Schram on a couple of weeks ago, and that episode was outstanding, and I'm so glad you want to continue it with John Edwards. Yeah,
1: so there's so much interesting things happening with ChatGPT, and an example of him is passing all these exams, like an MBA final exam. So what's the first thing you've heard uh, that's really interesting about AI, John? Well, first of all, it's hard to believe,
2: but ChatGPT is, is still less than three months old. So, I mean, if this were a newborn, I think it would still be under 10 (laughs) pounds, but in terms of technology adoption, it's really already a teenager and that has some pretty big implications. So, you know, there's a lot of really good quotes out there about ChatGPT, both pro and con, but as I sort of think about one that kind of summarizes most of it, I'm going to pick the dad in this story, a guy by the name of Sam Altman, who is the co-founder of the company OpenAPI, which is the one that launched ChatGPT. And recently at a Silicon Valley event, he said two things. First thing he said was, I think the best case is so good that it's hard to imagine. And then he followed that up with, I think the worst case is lights out for all of us. (laughs) So uh, what I like about this quote is that it really not only encapsulates kind of the spectrum that's out there right now about the hopes and fears that others are saying and and thinking about when they look at ChatGPT, but, you know, it's it's exactly the kind of thing a parent might say and feel about their own kid, right? There's some irony in it. There's some humor in it. And I feel like it rings true.
1: Excellent. So what's your opinion, John? Is is the Chat GPT here to stay?
2: Yes, I do. To answer that question, maybe let's take a look at adoption curves and in particular, how long historically it's taken a technology to reach what I'll call, say, 50% penetration. And I kind of picked 50% for a reason. For me, that's about the time that everyone, including your grandmother and grandfather, can and probably are starting to use it, right? So let's take a look at the personal computer and smartphones. Those took seven years from their initial introduction to reach 50% market penetration. How about social media? Just six years. How about the internet? Four years. So when we look at ChatGPT, I've got two data points for you. One is that it took five days to reach 1 million users, took Facebook about 10 months to get to that point. And it took just one month to reach 100 million users. So the short answer is, yes, it's here to stay, and then
1: some. Wow, that's amazing. And I'm sure you've heard this from other people. It seems like it's pretty hard to get into it right now. Yeah,
2: and the reasons are twofold. Uh, One is capacity, and, and the other is economics. So for the first one, basically, the room is too small. If you're old enough, I liken it to Studio 54, in Manhattan in the late 1970s, where you suddenly found yourself in an insanely, you know, trying to get to an insanely popular destination in an insanely popular place, and everyone wanted in. The result was that the lines got longer outside while the same number of people were only able to get in. So basically, it's a function of its own success. The unexpected explosion in demand and usage for ChatGPT, those 100 million people within the first month. I'm sure that it caught open AI by surprise. They just didn't have the computing horsepower or capacity to support it. But there is another reason and that's cost. ChatGPT is based on something called a large language model and we can talk a little bit more about that here in a bit, but that powers ChatGPT and it is an expensive thing to create and to tap into. For example, each question or prompt that you enter into the application is processed against something like 175 billion connections to produce whatever answer you're gonna get. So, and I read in a recent article in Fortune that Sam Altman, the guy I talked about earlier, said that it costs OpenAPI several pennies in computing expense per interaction. So think about that, pennies per interaction. So what happens when you multiply several pennies times 100 million users times, however many questions get asked, that's a lot of coin. Mm. OpenAI had expenses of about $416 million last year on just computing and data alone. That was against like $30 million in revenue. So actually, it's one reason why I think they're now offering a $20 per month plan to get in and get more access to the product.
1: It turns out our little teenager eats a lot. (laughs) Right. Okay, well, thank you for that. That's great insight. So how does it actually work, John?
2: actually it works a lot like the human brain, which is not by accident. So the primary thing that it does is it's actually kind of a simple twist on what you want an application to do. It is part of a artificial intelligence. So it's a subpart of AI. And in particular, it's an application that's built to predict the future words in a sentence. So why it's like the human brain is because this large language model that I mentioned earlier is built on uh, neural networks. And those neural networks function much like the human brain does when synapses are firing and thoughts and responses are created. That neural network, as I mentioned earlier as well, requires massive processing power. And that processing power is used to predict the, I'm going to do air quotes here, statistical likelihood that any one group of words is going to appear next to any other group of words in a given context. For example, when you go into ChatGPT and you type in what is the answer to, and you ask the question, it is going to give you that answer based on what it sees as the statistical relationship between the words that you entered and the words that are expected to follow. So here's an example. If I asked you what comes after Mary Mary, you very likely might say quite contrary. But if you ask ChatGPT, it might say, Mary Mary had a little lamb.
1: So, sometimes uh, ChatGPT is going to get it wrong, right?
2: Yeah. So, ChatGPT is essentially, if you think about it, autocomplete on steroids. And for that reason, it frequently invents information, right? It's trying to fill in the rest of what you were asking for. And the response that it gives may be incorrect. And AI researchers actually have a name for this it's called hallucinations. And when a hallucination happens, The challenge is that the system doesn't have a mechanism, ChatGPT being the system, in place to track the truth of what it says, right? It's just giving a statistical prediction of what it thinks comes next, and it just puts it out there, right? And it also doesn't cite its sources back to you. So you can't prove the truth of it either, at least for the moment, that is. I'm sure they're working on that. So back to the teenager analogy, teenagers just don't answer questions with a consistent level of accuracy that say a college student or professor or a professional might give you. And those implications can be very real. For example, Stack Overflow had to ban coders submitting answers crafted by ChatGPT because the site was overwhelmed by answers that seemed plausible, but were actually wrong. CNET had a bunch of articles that it was publishing online that using ChatGPT and then found that a number of them had factual inaccuracies. So they had to to go back and change those. I, I think they're not using that approach any longer. And back to code writing, writing accurate code can be dangerous too. There's a cybersecurity firm called Checkpoint that was able to get ChatGPT to compose every phase of a cyber attack, from crafting the very convincing phishing email to writing the malicious code that was able to evade common cybersecurity checks. So basically, you had ChatGPT being used by somebody who did not have the capacity to commit a crime, but using ChatGPT was able to attempt it, right, or to undertake it. So the... The implications are very large, and I think we're we're all still processing where, where this could go and where we need to be careful.
1: So following up on that, would, um, it would seem to me there would be some legal challenges to it already.
2: Yeah, every meaningful disruptive technology um, has been met with legal challenges, and, and chat GPT and applications like it are no exception. One of the reasons is because chat, the generative AI, that training that I talked about, the, all that web data, that is material scraped from the internet without permission or compensation. Um, and I'm gonna repeat that actually. The training data, you know, those 175 billion connections that it mines for predicting answers, is scraped from internet data without permission or compensation. So anyone with any experience in copyright law, for example, can see where this might be headed. And Actually, it is already headed there. For example, Microsoft and OpenAI are already facing a $9 billion class action lawsuit in California for failing to credit or compensate coders for using their code to train GitHub's code assistant called Copilot in violation of what it says are its open licensing terms. Other AI companies like Stability AI and MidJourney, these are AI image generator products, they're facing class action lawsuits from artists as well as Getty Images for copyright infringement, So, because they're using that copyrighted art in their training data without permission. So ultimately, I think the outcome of any of these lawsuits, and I'll see as well related governmental intervention, could significantly alter the trajectory and go-to-market approach for products like ChatGPT. So we will see.
1: Wow, that's an interesting insight, John. Thanks for that. So how did OpenAI get going?
2: So OpenAI was started in 2015, again, by Sam Altman and others, and it was actually in direct response to a purchase that Google had made that year of a London-based neural network company called DeepMind. Basically, the fear was in Silicon Valley, everybody outside of Google, was that Google was going to use it to, to ultimately monopolize AI. So almost immediately, they pulled a consortium of people together, and Sam and others were able to secure the financial backing from a number of Silicon Valley heavy hitters. Elon Musk was part of that original group, although he later had to step away because of conflict of interest for some AI he was doing with Tesla. But you had the, the co-founder of, of LinkedIn involved and, and you had a number of major VC firms like Sequoia Capital and, and, and Andreessen Horowitz. Anyway, a lot of money started to pour in very quickly as a kind of a, a, a response to the threat that um, people saw in what Google was thought to be doing. Uh, And then the game changed when Microsoft stepped in. So Google has a 90% share of the search market. Microsoft's Bing has 3% share, right? So I think Microsoft saw a very significant uh, window of opportunity here to use this technology to kind of unseat or disintermediate uh, much of what Google was doing. So they've actually committed to the tune of about $13 billion of new capital into OpenAI to advance these technologies. And for those investments, they've secured very long-term, high percentages of, of the future profit flows of products like this um, until certain financial measures are met. So uh, the other things that I'll mention uh, real quickly, you know, OpenAI was actually started as a nonprofit research firm. A lot of people don't know that, but the cost to take artificial intelligence where it needed to go, basically outstripped the funding model of a not-for-profit. So OpenAI, of course, is now for-profit. We've got those VC investors in there. We've got, we've got Microsoft in there. But that hasn't been without some internal philosophical rifts within the company. I think there are researchers that really sort of want and like the philosophical roots of a not-for-profit. But for now, they're out there to commercialize this technology. Um, in the end, dad and mom, are, uh, you know, the parents of this teenager are going to get pretty rich. OpenAI is currently valued as, as high as $29 billion. They already expect over $200 million in revenue this year. And in 2024, they're already projecting over a billion dollars in revenue. And my expectation is as fast as things are moving, that they're going to do far better than both of those numbers going forward.
1: So that kind of brings up the next logical question. Is, um, is all this activity a threat to Google?
2: Yes, it is. When people refer to chat as a disruptive technology, Google and its search interface is exactly what they have in mind. One way to look at it is the global AI market of which ChatGPT is now powering uh, is projected to grow from roughly a quarter the size of the market for online search, as it was in 2020, to three times the size of search by 2025. And when you consider that Google, again, has 90% market share for search and Bing has just 3%, it's no surprise that Google is rumored to have declared an internal code red in response to ChatGPT.
0: Over 200 correlation studies show that natural aptitude is the most significant factor in predicting sales success. Asher's advanced personality questionnaire, the APQ, consistently identifies peak performers in outside sales, inside sales, sales management, customer support, and 17 other business positions. Go to AsherStrategies.com today or call 866-833-9941. That's Asher Strategies at 866-833-9941.
2: And that response is not necessarily going smoothly for them here at the start. For example, Google has their own much-hyped response to ChatGPT. It's product called BARD, which they demoed in Paris on February the 8th. In that live demo, it gave the audience a partially incorrect response to a question. Within five hours, Google's stock dropped 7.7%, which was a same-day loss of $100 billion. Wow. So the stakes are very high.
0: I want to go back to something you were talking about earlier that the responses we get from ChatGPT don't always, you know, they kind of make it up and they don't cite their sources. So I had a chat going and I asked, so can you please cite your sources on this? And so I was given like eight websites Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. then ChatGPT said and some articles. I said, and what are those articles? And I got them all. So I got my little bibliography that I was looking for to help back up what it said to check it out to see how accurate and unbiased or biased.
2: Yeah, and it would be it would be good to actually look at those then and see how they correlate to to what was said. They're absolutely working on this sort of attribution model. In fact, ChatGPT, they are looking at kind of a search results type version of their interface, which would, would do some of that as well. So yes, no, I'm, I'm glad you did that. Um, the other thing that I thought you might be heading towards is this notion that you know Google has a brand that is built on trusted results. Uh, so although it might be tempted to dive quickly into the chat GPT space, as you mentioned, it does not always give a correct answer. That's more dangerous for Google as a brand than it is for other products, right? Because they have a reputation to uphold. Right. So I think partly they wanna move quickly. I think partly they, they should be very concerned about any erosion in trust if they kind of jump into the space and the results that people get to the questions that they ask aren't to the standards that Google has to live up to in the classic search experience.
1: I mean, the thing I like about it is uh, when you do search on Google, you get all kinds of choices. When you do go into chat uh, GPT, you get the answer.
2: You do. And again, you hope that the answer is right. If you get the choices, you have to do more work, but you're the one who's ultimately deciding whether one piece of information is better than another. On the right. other side of the coin, that can be fairly inefficient, right? And if you really can get the right answer in fully generative form without you know any other places that you need to go, then there's huge time and, and resource efficiencies that can be gained. So I think both ends of that conversation need to be tied together. And I know aggressively that they're trying to do that.
1: So, John, um, how would this apply to search engine optimization or SEO?
2: The best comparison I can think of is that if you've used sibling AI tools like Google Home or Siri or Alexa device, um, when you ask a question, you get an answer. You don't get a list of search results, which is kind of what you were just talking about, John, a second ago. Well, that in part is the future of what the future of SEO could look like especially for what we call unbranded searches. So an unbranded searches, where we aren't already looking for a particular brand or a particular website because we don't know their URL or, we, or a particular product. These are kind of those problem benefit type searches that happen earlier in the buyer's journey or path to purchase. So, uh, you know, companies work hard and covet these early search results, these unbranded search result traffic because they want to be inserted earlier into the buyer's consideration set. But here's the rub. The answer to that problem or benefit or request that you typed into ChatGPT doesn't send you anywhere, just like we talked about a second ago. Answer stays within the ChatGPT AI. So, again, unless you ask for other links and sources to go there, a lot of people may not do that. And so, again... You've worked hard to produce a whole bunch of great content, and you are helping ChatGPT answer that question, but there's not a link to your website to do anything more with it. So as new chat experiences, search experiences take off, this does potentially imperil what I'll call traditional search engine optimization, which is we're trying to find the right keywords, we're trying to guess what people are trying to look for, and, and we're writing content around those keywords because those keywords encapsulate the questions that are being asked. And again if all we're doing is answering those questions better and better and better but then they get scraped into the chat gpt database then chat gpt will just use those in combination with a couple of other sources and provide an answer and and you're, you're you know you don't see any benefit from it so this is one of the reasons google is having kind of a freak out right if search changes dramatically they're going to have a hard time making up for a lot of lost revenue from placing ads into and around search results right that's you know that's right. that, that's like up to 60% of their overall, overall revenue streams they have other revenue streams like display ads and other things but this is the silver tuna and it is under threat
1: so john how it's kind of obvious to me that um, in in your world of marketing there's a lot of people involved in what's called content creation it would seem to me that this will really help them or help companies not need quite so many people involved in this.
2: Yeah, it is. Um, I think so. The benefits, I think, are fairly easy to enumerate and get excited about, right? The research phase of content development could be uh, incredibly compressed. As the answers become more accurate, it, it becomes even more fully complete. Um, you know, it's not going to answer questions that involve feelings or emotions particularly well. But it is going to really sort of help in that sort of bootstrapping process for for creating interesting and helpful and useful content. Again, how that useful content within ChatGPT translates to your brand, we can talk about that here in a little bit. I think another big takeaway is, you know, again, what I was sort of hinting at, which is that you know all this wonderful text that we've been creating and publishing on our web pages and blogs are now suddenly feeding these large language models, and we're not going to get credit for it, right? So, what we really want to do is think about. Are we informing another product that may or may not give us immediate advantage? And what are the steps that we can take to address that? SEO is going to need to change dramatically. I know that the people that work on it are really already starting to think about these things. And Microsoft itself is actually looking to put ChatGPT into its search engine. But you know, what's going to start to change is, I think, the way that we think about how content is created and how it lives on your website and what the goals of it are.
1: Got it. Got it. So in that same vein, what should the marketing professionals really be thinking about now?
2: There's a guy by the name of Christopher Penn, who is someone I think folks who like to follow topics like SEO and data analytics should look up. But he advises that people need to start building what he calls their insurance policy. Uh, What what does that mean? Um, The first is that you should build your brand, right? As part of an SEO strategy, we used to advise companies to shoot for what I call a 50-50 split in search traffic. 50% of it should come from these non-branded terms like I want a quiet tire that will work on an SUV on normal road conditions, right? I don't have a particular brand in mind, but I have an outcome that I'm looking for. That's what we call a non-branded early buyer journey top of funnel search term. Versus a bottom funnel search term, which was, you know, I want a Hercules uh, XYZ kind of tire. And so I already know the manufacturer. I might even know the brand name. And I put that into the search engine and it gives me a result. Because so much of the future search experience might be results that don't include your brand, then we're going to need to think about how do we amplify and boost your brand name and recognition such that when you are associated with a particular answer to a problem, 80 or 90% of the traffic that you get is now branded traffic. And that happens because you do things overtly, like you integrate your brand into the content that you create without sounding too salesy, but you really want that brand association to be developed. In the future, your name and your brand, if you're not building those, you're gonna be in danger. Should we still be building informational content? Absolutely. I mentioned, let's get your brand name into it. Also, and we can talk about this here in a little bit, think about gating your best content, right? Is there a reason why you should allow your best content to be scraped and to be pulled into these large language models you know, beyond your control? There's some simple things you can do, and, uh, and we can talk about that. The second thing is to build your community, right? Your community is are the names and the people who live in your email and marketing lists, in your text messaging lists, in your Facebook and Slack and Discord groups, it these are critical because they power what Christopher Penn calls reliable reach.
1: Got it. So what is reliable reach?
2: Reliable reach is your ability to reach your audience and get their attention in a reliable and timely manner. You know, so there are plenty of marketing channels out there that have reach, but that reach isn't reliable because you can't directly control who gets it and when. That's controlled by search and social media platform algorithms, not by you. So for example, SEO, search engine optimization, that lets you reach plenty of new customers, but you have little control over it as a channel because Google's algorithm is gonna decide who sees it and when they see it. So it may or may not show up to the persons, people that you're trying to reach, or it may not show up when you want them to reach it, right? So this is something that you need to sort of kind of really think about. And I'm talking about organic search right here now. Paid search is a little bit different because you can target information at people using filters and parameters and stuff. But even paid search is at risk a little bit because anybody who tried to buy advertising uh, on search platforms and, and other uh, social media platforms during the 2020 uh, presidential election kind of realized either there wasn't the inventory available or they couldn't afford it. So... There are ways around it, but they're not bulletproof. Uh, th- again, the same is true for organic social media, right? So I'm on Facebook or LinkedIn or or Twitter, and you know it can let me get my messaging out to my fans, but those platforms have their own AI algorithms that aren't gonna guarantee you specifically who's gonna see it and when. Somebody who really follows me might see a message that I put up, but it might take three or four days before it shows up in their feed. So think about it this way. Basically, any channel where there's some kind of algorithm that mediates the experience between you and your audience really can't be considered a reliable reach channel.
1: Hmm. Well, John, this has been uh, absolutely fascinating, all this background. So great. So what can we leave the listeners with? Maybe three things that they need to be thinking about from, a, from, say, a marketing standpoint or even a whole company standpoint.
2: Um, Yeah, well, one is, again, think about these reliable reach channels, your email and your SMS and messaging apps and lists, right? You know, you should be building your what we call first party data list, right? The names, the addresses, the demographic and firmographic information of the people that you want to talk to, and then have a, a mechanism for when you hit submit or send, you know that it's going to get there right away. Uh, on the social media side, go ahead and develop some private social media communities. These private social media communities that can exist within Facebook or Slack or Discord, these are, they're outside the scope or the sphere of the the algorithm, right? These are people who voluntarily enter a space and anytime a message is posted in that space, people are going to see it. Even channels like PR, when you've got crisis communications and things like that, you can distribute a specific message a specific time and push it to specific publications and journalists and all that stuff. Even direct mail. So you know, again, you know, focus on that. Uh, the other thing to think about is you know, ChatGPT and technologies like it are here to stay. Uh, remember that it's going to be. I think it's going to be about brand, brand, brand going forward. Name recognition now matters more than ever. Uh, think lists, 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 like I just mentioned, email, SMS, and others. And then finally, when I mentioned gating your best content. You, know, you can do one of two things. If you have really great content, you can put that content behind uh, landing pages with forms so you can collect information which actually build your list, right? Somebody gives up personal information and now you can communicate with them going forward because the quality of the content is so good. You can also just do something as simple as a capture button, which just basically, doesn't, it just doesn't allow a robot to go ahead and scrape your site and pull some of your best content. So just kind of think about where your best content lives, either in front of or behind some sort of a wall. I think ultimately, and these are my last two points, this ultimately is good news, I think, for everyone in marketing. Because I talked about branding, that means that creatives and branding professionals have a lot that they can and will need to do going forward. People who are in funnel marketing, who are collecting lists and names and, and audiences to segment and talk to, those are going to be critical those reliable reach channels that I talked about, social in terms of private communities, PR in terms of the role that it can play. And even the SEO folks on your marketing team, they're going to figure this stuff out. So, you know, probably the, the, the way to wrap a bow around this is that, you know, every great new technology from steam engines to electricity, trains to cars, the internet to mobile phones, all of them ultimately created more economic value, more opportunities and more jobs than they destroyed. And I have no reason to believe that Chat GPT is going to be any different. So I see the glasses half full going forward.
0: I agree with you 100%, John. I hear people panicking, but what I think happens is people silo themselves too much into a job description that's actually a tactic. Mm-hmm. Rather than you still have the same job description, now learn these new skills, learn better how to brand, learn more about building these communities, engaging with your audience rather than just whenever you send a newsletter out once a month, really be thoughtful about that.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And also though, the skill that we all need to learn is prompt engineering. We mm-hmm. need to learn how to mm-hmm. speak to it and get what we actually need. As you know, we were talking about earlier with the citing the examples, where did you get it? Let's follow up. Right, It's a time saver.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. The quality of the questions you ask and, and that dialogue is a directly correlates with the quality of the answer that you ultimately get back, right? Um, and the first request doesn't always get you there, but if you if you get better at the second and third and fourth question, then this really becomes an exciting uh, new application and tool for, for for anybody who interacts with it. This has been terrific.
0: What a great episode, John Asher. You bring the best guests on. <laughs> uh,
1: thank you, Susan. So, John, thanks so much. It was very illuminating, I have to say. And so, something we all really need to pay attention to for sure.
2: You are welcome. I thank you for asking, and always excited to talk about stuff like this uh, to your wonderful audience. Thanks again, John. Susan, thank you very much. Well, John, thank what's
0: you. A, what's the best way for everybody to find you, John Edwards? No, you everybody. want them to find you on yes. LinkedIn or your website or where?
2: Yeah, uh, well, thinkcommunique.com. So my, my company, we're a, a full service advertising agency and marketing agency. So we do everything from the traditional TV radio print to all of the you know modern media buying and, and content development and, and all of that stuff. And, uh, and and we pay a lot of attention to uh, what we call marketing technology stack tools. ChatGPT is a MARTAC tool. Um, But yeah, it's uh, it's great. And so I would say start with our website. For me personally, you can find me on LinkedIn at slash Jedwar. And my email address is jedwards at thinkcommunique.com. And I would be happy to interact with anyone who listens to this broadcast and carry the conversation forward. Terrific. Thank you so much for another wonderful episode of Asher
0: Sales Sense brought to you by Asher Strategies on the Funnel Radio Group's channel. You can find more episodes in all your favorite podcast venues.
1: All right, great. There we go. Great job.